Yes, we're back in Colossians. We took a little break over Holy Week and Easter, and some of you are thinking, Colossians is still happening? Wow, I mean, can you imagine if we were doing a series on Isaiah? I mean, we would be going on for like a couple years here, but we are wrapping up Colossians today, and this is a pretty long passage that I'm going to be tackling today, and there's a lot in there that I would like to skip, really. (laughs) Uh, At the beginning, you know, when it starts right out with wives submit to your husbands, you're like, maybe I'll just bank this one for another time. But, you know, I think we're going we're gonna to do a, a flyover, and I'm kind of excited about it because, you know, Paul wrote this letter to Colossae, and he, he didn't do a deep dive on each and every one of these subjects. He touched on things that he thought were important. And so if this letter could be read there, I think we can cover it the same as well today uh, as I'll hit each one of these. So this first section especially, we could do a whole seminar on each one of these things, on marriage, on parenting, on slavery, on work, right? We could, we could do a deep dive in each one of those. And hopefully this will whet your appetite a little bit so that you'll want to do a deep dive in some of these areas. That would be great, but we're just going to touch on them, kind of like a rock skipping across the water, okay? Uh, So with that and with a little trepidation, we're going to dive in. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, and it is truth. I thank you that uh, we have an opportunity today, Lord, to hear from you, uh, from the words that you inspired Paul to write over 2,000 years ago. Lord, we thank you uh, for these words. We ask that you would teach us this morning by your word and by your spirit. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So we're organizing this part of scripture into three points this morning. And the first point is going to be as for the Lord and not for men. Now I'm going to unpack that as we go through. But if you're taking notes and you you want to keep things in order, that's point number one. As for the Lord and not for men. And with that said, let's kind of dive in and start with marriage. So right out of the gate, Paul says, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So God asks each of us to do some of what is most difficult for us. For a woman, uh, one of the deepest needs that a woman has is security. And so with her deep need for security, what often can happen is uh, you seek to take control. And yet what's interesting is God calls her to do that which is most difficult, which is to submit. And because this is the greatest need that we have, it can seem counterintuitive in this context. Uh, for the man, one of, one of man's greatest needs is respect. And men, this may, not, this may be uh, new to some of you, men are naturally self-centered. I mean, if you think about it, women are naturally more nurturing, more giving of themselves. Notice what he doesn't say in Scripture. He doesn't say, women, love your husbands. He kind of feels like that's going to happen naturally. Um, And for the guy to give up control when he can focus on things that he enjoys doing, uh, you know, that's not necessarily a hard thing for him to do. And so, you know, it's interesting thinking through that. What is not said? The wife is more loving and self-sacrificing and nurturing. And yet, uh, when the husband is passive and doesn't lead, the wife doesn't respect him. Isn't that interesting? So if, if he gives up that ability to lead, as Adam did in the garden, which, again, if you do a deep dive, you got to go all the way back. If he gives up that that leadership and allows her to take control, she's miserable, and he's miserable, because she doesn't feel secure, and, and he doesn't feel respected. And so 
we see here right out of the gate that Paul is saying, hey, I'm just going to say a couple things about marriage. But wow, he really drops it, doesn't he? He just throws it in there and lays some real wisdom on us about how to put things in proper order within the marriage relationship. Then he moves right into parenting in verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So, children, obey your parents. Most of us are familiar with this. This is one of the big ten, right? The Ten Commandments. Children obeying your parents. Again, the family order and the, uh, the way that God has put different people in authority structures is very important to God in the Bible. For that to be one of the Ten Commandments, and here Paul is restating that, that we are to obey our parents, uh, we can see that it's pretty important to God. You can see this also if you did a study, if you wanted to go through the Gospels and see how Jesus describes his relationship with God the Father, right? He uses that terminology of, of, a, of a loving son and his heavenly father. And what is his attitude towards his father all through the Gospels? It's one of, I came to do the will of my father only. I only teach you what I have from my father. Every, you know, he gives incredible deference, respect, uh, saying that he is here to accomplish what his father has given him to do. And so this family structure and system is really important to God. And he even says at the end of this that we should obey because it pleases the Lord. It gives God pleasure to see children obeying and respecting and honoring their parents. Think about that. He doesn't say that very often, that this is something that, makes, that pleases God. And so we should take, you know, pay special attention to the fact that when, again, the family system is ordered the way that God has designed it, that it's something that, that pleases him. And it's something, as he's putting things in their proper place, we should pay attention to. Then he moves to fathers. Now think about this. He says, fathers, do not exasperate your kids. Uh, don't frustrate them. Think about how radical that was for the time this was written. What do you think a Roman or Greek or Hebrew father's uh, situation was like in that society. I mean, think about that concerning women and children were often largely considered to be property. And here in the New Testament, he's saying, hey, fathers, don't frustrate and exasperate your kids. As your children are growing, as they're discovering who they are as people, they need room, they need respect. Uh, When we come in and, and give a kid less freedom and less responsibility as they grow, it leads to rebellion. Instead of giving them more freedom and more responsibility and treating them as people instead of children, that kind of respect is what keeps them from being exasperated and frustrated. And so he gives us this, and again, taking a radical departure, telling husbands to love their wives, telling husbands not to exasperate their children from that culture would have been quite different. Next, he moves into bond servants. Verse 22, bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but rather with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, whenever we have a passage that's on a bond servant or slavery, uh, it causes a lot of dissonance for all of us right then, right? Again, we could take a deep dive and spend two hours unpacking uh, what slavery looked like or bond servants in that context. 
But I want to just challenge you because we tend to so put our Western kind of American slavery that happened at the beginning of this country over this text. We really need to think more Downton Abbey and less 12 years a slave, okay? If that's helpful. You know, in, in this time and in this context, so many that were a, a bond servant was someone who, you know, there, there weren't the safety nets that we have and deal with today in society. And so if you were starving to death, it was better to put yourself as a bond servant to someone and you got food and clothing and uh, shelter and you serve that family. Uh, that context is probably more realistic for a lot of the, the slavery that you read about, especially within the New Testament context. And so in thinking like that, I mean, you remember the parable of the prodigal son. What did the prodigal son say when he was eat, feeding the pigs and he longs to eat the pods? He says, man, my father has a lot of hired men who have it better than I have it right now. Their bellies are full. They're doing fine. I'm going to go home and tell my dad what? Let me be like one of your servants. Okay, so this is kind of the context that we see this here. But what still happens as we read what Paul is saying is the principles that he shares here actually transform the relationship between master and servant. Uh, it, this whole context is transformed. Master and servant are now brothers and sisters in Christ. What do you think that does to that kind of relationship? Let's look at some other scriptures that talk about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says this, For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord, and likewise he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. He's saying if you, if you were a slave when called, you are free in Christ, and if you are free when called, you are a slave to Christ. And he's reorienting and redefining this relationship. Look at verse 25 in the passage we're in now. He says, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Again, how radical is this for the time period that we're reading in? He's saying there's no partiality with God. Whether you are a master or whether you are a servant, you God treats you and looks at you the same. I mean, that's a radical statement for this time period where the, the structure in society was very strict and the clear lines were drawn between those who have and those who have not, those who were in charge and those who were servants. And he's saying, no, I'm throwing all that away. In Christ, you are one family. We even see, as if to make this point even stronger, if you keep reading, down in verse 9, we didn't read this part of the scripture, but at the end of, this, of chapter 4, there's just a bunch of greetings and, hey, I sent this guy with the letter and greet him and, and a lot of things like that. And one of the guys that he mentions, it's very interesting, he mentions Onesimus. And he says, and with him, the guy who brought the letter is Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you? Now, what's interesting, if you want to do some further study in this area, is read Philemon, because... Onesimus is a runaway bondservant of Philemon, and he's coming with the guy who's carrying the letter, and Philemon is one of the guys who's hearing this preached, and he's saying, by the way, Onesimus is one of you. Think about that. The one who ran away has come back, and Paul is redefining that relationship. In fact, Philemon, he goes into great detail about what it means 
for, he says, accept Onesimus back and charge his account to me. That's the kind of thing that Paul is saying, that he is now one of you and he left you un, uh, an unhelpful servant, but he's coming back someone who is going to be useful for you. I mean, that's amazing when you think of him redefining this relationship. But when we see these kind of scriptures that, that deal with this kind of thing, how are we supposed to interpret that in our context today? A lot of it. For us, a lot of that has to do with, with work. We can look at this in a context and say, what principles can I gain from this? And as a worker, what he's saying is we're not just to do the minimum, right? We're supposed to work hard, not just when our boss is paying attention, but we're supposed to be working as for the Lord. And really, that's the overarching principle for this whole first section that we've read. And that's why I said we're going to call it as, as for the Lord and not for men, okay? Because verse 23, he says this, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now, a lot of you are hearing this and saying, yeah, but you don't understand. My husband isn't worthy of submission. And you may be right when you say that. He may not be worthy of that. But when you submit to him, what he's saying in this passage is, you're actually submitting to Christ. When you submit to him, you're submitting to Christ. And Christ is the one who actually provides true security in your relationship. You may say, but you don't understand. My parents are unreasonable. I don't know that they're worthy of honor. And you may be right, but when you honor them, you honor Christ. You don't know what a jerk my boss is. I hate that guy. I don't mean you, BP. Um, <laughs> but see, you aren't serving him. You're working for the Lord. And he's the one, the Lord, who will ultimately reward you. How transformative could this principle be if you and I applied this to every aspect of our life? If we could take this and say, I can apply this to every aspect, to my parents, to my spouse, to my boss, to that person on my team who makes me crazy, to my roommate. If we can apply these things, it has the power to transform us. Well, everything we've talked about so far is probably worth the price of admission, but we have two more points to get to. Point number two that Paul gets to as he starts in chapter four is to stay steadfast in prayer. Listen in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, and at the same time pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So he describes prayer, and he uses three words right out of the gate. He says, the prayer is to be steadfast, it is to be watchful, and it is to be thankful. Steadfast, watchful, and thankful. If you look up steadfast, it's not a word we use very often in modern English, but it says this, um, steadfast means resolutely or dutifully firm and unwavering. Resolutely or dutifully firm and unwavering. That describes our prayer life, right? Everybody's prayer life. I don't know about you. I'm very challenged when I read that and think, man, you know, how many times do I tell someone I'm going to pray for them? And you remember the first day or two, but do we pray for them resolutely, dutifully, and unwavering? Then he uses the word watchful. Are we praying expectantly? 
When we pray, are we watching for what God is doing? Are we watching to see the way that he is working in our lives and in the lives of those we are praying for? And finally, are we thankful? Are we thankful for what he has done? So often, you will see this in Scripture when Paul is telling us to pray. He brings up thankfulness, right? In Philippians chapter 4, he does the same thing. Uh, He says, don't worry about what you're going to do, but we need to be praying with thankfulness in our hearts to God. He always brings up this idea of thankfulness, and I think that's because the thankfulness has so much to do with our attitude in prayer. You know, if we go to God and bringing our requests before him, but we're, we're coming to him with an attitude of saying, God, you have already done so much in my life. You have already given me so much. And that attitude of thankfulness can transform that, the way we do that. Think of if, if you have a child and they come to you asking for something. How different is that when they come to you already thankful for what you have done when they bring their request? Does that change the way you experience that encounter? Uh, It does. And so for us to have this attitude of thankfulness as we're praying to the Lord. And then he asks them, he says, he starts praying for his evangelistic efforts. He prays that God would open a door, first of all. And then he prays that he would clearly communicate the gospel. That God would open a door and he would clearly communicate the gospel. Now this is really interesting to me for a lot of reasons. One is... Paul is probably the greatest evangelist in history who planted churches all over the whole Mediterranean world, right? The known world at the time. He was the evangelist. In fact, God said, I'm I'm calling you specifically to take the word of God to the Gentiles. He has witnessed before kings, before, you know, emperors, all kinds of things. And here he's saying, hey, would you guys pray? I'm in prison right now. And there's some guys around me that really need the Lord. Would you pray that I would open a door for me to do that well? That's just unbelievable. And then he says, oh, and by the way, pray that I make the mystery of the gospel clear. This is the guy who wrote Romans chapter 8. And he's saying, would you pray that the mystery of the gospel would be clear as I do that? Now, I think about this. What's so profound to me is a lot of us have people we're thinking about sharing our faith with. And if you're like me, you're nervous about it. You don't feel adequate when you do it. In fact, you feel like you're tripping over your words or you're thinking, how, how is anyone capable of doing this? And it gives me comfort to know that Paul feels the same way. The guy who wrote most of the New Testament feels that way as well. And that he's asking for this. We have a power source when we share our faith, and that's the Holy Spirit. He's the one who actually changed hearts. He's the one who opens the door. He's the one that helps us to speak clearly. And so when we pray, why do we not pray for that? It's almost like we've spilled and have a big mess on the floor, and we grab a vacuum cleaner, and we just start going over the mess. But we forget to plug it in. That's what my evangelism without God is like, is that I'm trying to vacuum up the floor, and the power cord is just hanging loose. We have the Holy Spirit. He's the one who really changes hearts and lives. He's the one who makes the mystery of the gospel clear. And so we have to engage with the Holy Spirit in our evangelistic efforts. Then he moves on to the last section we're going to cover, walking with outsiders, point number three. Walking with outsiders. You know, he assumes that you will. First, let's address the word outsiders. 
That's his word, not mine. He's talking to a group of Christians. And so he's saying those that are outside the church, how do we walk with them? And then he assumes that we will walk with them. Some of us may try to order our lives where we're only around other believers. That's easy to do in today's society, right? We can kind of do a holy huddle all the time. But Paul is assuming that you're going to be interacting with the non-Christian world. And so he's saying, hey, again, a few words. How can you and should you walk with those that are outside? Look at verse 5. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So he says we, need, we are to walk in wisdom as we interact with those outside the church. And then he, he gives us a couple of things of what that means. One is that we make the most use of the time, that we're aware of what's happening. We're not just experiencing it. We're thinking, hey, I've got this opportunity the way Paul did, right? He said, hey, pray for me. I've got all these people around me that are non-Christians. We are, are we aware of that when we enter into those spaces? And then he says that our speech would be seasoned with salt, filled with grace and truth. That our speech would be seasoned and filled with grace and truth. Yeah, Cammie and I, years ago, we were uh, exchange students in Russia. This was over 30 years ago. For nine months, we were living in a dorm with about 10 other American exchange students. And we went there thinking, as we're exchange students, we we volunteered at an orphanage. We tried doing some other things. But we found that actually one of the big reasons that God took us there was to actually minister to these other American students that were there. None of them were believers. And we were very aware of that all the time. We would have conversations. Hey, oh, man, I can't believe I said this around them. We were thinking about our speech, about what we were saying, what we were doing. Were we being faithful with the time that we had and the speech that we had. We do the same thing now, even with our family. If we're going out of town, like, like you, a lot of, we have a lot of family members who may not be believers or friendships that are not believers. And before we go, we think, hey, how can I use this time the best? How can we as a family pray? How can we serve when we go? If we're just around our cousins for a little while, what does it look like to make use of that time and to serve them uh, without being asked so that they see that there's a difference in us, and that we have an opportunity to share the mystery of the gospel with them. You know, it's not a bad idea to do that even if you're going to hang out with Christian relatives. It's still a good idea to get together and pray. How can you serve them and love them well? But just thinking about this idea that we are to walk with wisdom when we're with those who don't know who God is. Now, notice each one of these things as we've gone through very rapidly through this whole section of Scripture— each one reinforces the others, right? If you're walking, walking with outsiders is so much easier if you're steadfast in your prayer life. Serving somebody is easier if you serve them as if you're serving Christ. And you're going to make the best use of the time with your coworkers or your boss if you pray for God to open the door and to season your speech with salt. So if you're here today and you don't feel like you have the ability to do any of this, uh, any of the things that I'm talking about, you're right. You may feel like an outsider, but I want you to know that it's easy to become an insider. It's easy to become a believer. You have to admit that you're a sinner, believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he is, and that he came to save you, and you commit your life to him. And I don't want you to leave here today without talking to me or to, to BP down front or to Rob or to somebody maybe that you came with and say, hey, I, I hear all this about Christianity. What does it really mean 
to walk with the Lord. Um, don't leave today without having that question answered for you. And if you're here today and you're a believer, my challenge for you today, right, is to live as for the Lord and not for men, to be steadfast in prayer, to walk by wisdom and power of the Holy Spirit, and to make the best use of the time, right? We need to plug the vacuum cleaner of our life in so that we have power to do these things that we have access to. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, even as we read it quickly and go through these things and remind ourselves of these deep truths, even just touching on each one, knowing we could spend an hour or a week talking about marriage or parenting or work or slavery, all of these different things, God, uh, we thank you that you have given us that word to encourage us today. And I pray, God, that you would help us, Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit to live in power as we interact with our coworkers and our friends and family. Lord, as we are walking day in and day out in our marriages and in our parenting, we need your power and strength to work in and through us. All these things we ask you in Christ's name. Amen.